Previously on Caustic Soda. This is a special episode where us women have taken over the studio. I'm not sure exactly where we've tied up the men, but they're somewhere. Dun, dun, dun. In order to talk about sexism. And now, the conclusion. Some episodes of Caustic Soda do start with an acapella song that is a parody of the Muppet Show theme, performed and uh, created by Torin. And in it, there is the following lyric. It's time to set the mics up. It's time for tales of woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. So this is one of two or three emails we've received from fans on this topic. Uh, This one is from the listener, Nicole. It says, I hope this doesn't come off as pedantic, but the first time I heard the Muppet Show style intro, I was a little confused by the take the red pill line since the phrase take the red pill has been appropriated by men's rights activists and online racists. But then I realized that the Muppet intro was created before red pill became a catchphrase for terrible people on the internet. And you guys are generally very good about recognizing your privilege and providing trigger warnings. I just wanted to point it out in case anyone else gives you shit about it. So what did it mean if it didn't mean like the red pill, horrible people on the internet? Because, yeah, I never noticed that. And when I think red pill, I definitely also think MRAs. The Matrix. Yeah, and that's oh, where right, it comes of course. from. So they, yeah. they haven't made an official statement, but have so far decided not to go in and re-record a replacement lyric for future episodes that might use a theme song. The question is, you know, should Caustic Soda? Uh, do they make changes when men's rights, act- men's rights activists appropriate things from pop culture, the Matrix in this case? Um, and do we assume our listeners are silly enough to think that we're really part of the men's rights movement? Torn leads to no. Let's not mold everything to accommodate the worst people in society. I agree with the principle. Like, I don't think you need to change it out of an idea of, like, political correctness, because you're, you're totally right. It's the Matrix and the MRAs link it to the Matrix, and that's why they use it, too. Basically, it's like that they took the red pill and realized that women were actually the sexist ones. Um, but I think it should be changed because it doesn't rhyme. Grammar because oh, woe doesn't rhyme with, with show. Pill. Oh, wait, should, wait. Both should rhyme okay. a show. No, oh, right. Yeah, no, you're right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, it doesn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We're going to have to dissect the, the yeah. meter of this particular I'm, line of poetry. <laughs> I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not satisfied with it um, as a grammarian, but as a feminist, sure. Duly noted. So we're going to talk a little bit about sexism in science. Galileo, arguably one of the most illustrious of the Renaissance scientists, had three illegitimate children, two daughters and one son. Of the three, his oldest, Virginia, was the only one who mirrored his own brilliance, industry, sensibility, and virtue, and was, in his words, a woman of exquisite mind. Galileo deemed her unmarriageable because he had not married her mother, so at age 13, he placed her and her 12-year-old sister in a convent where they lived out their lives in poverty and seclusion. In contrast, his son was legitimized in a fiat. In contrast, his son was legitimized in a fiat by... <laughs> I thought it said, he got one of those cute little cars? <laughs> <laughs> it was a mobile ceremony. That's, that's kind of a cramped legitimization if you're in the backseat of those things. Is that just like a euphemism for um, he Galileo had sex with his legitimate wife in the back of a fiat? <laughs> I had a legitimized in a Fiat in high school. If there's any sex happening in the back of a Fiat, I question whether it's legitimate sex. <laughs> 
Diplomacy also played a central role uh, for Leonardo da Vinci because he was the illegitimate son of a 25-year-old notary and a peasant woman. Had he been born a girl, he would have been deemed unmarriageable and would probably have been sent off to a convent as well. There have been lots of women throughout history uh, who will remain unnamed, not just by us, but, you know, by everyone, because they were looked over for the work that they did in favor of male colleagues that they may have been collaborating with, even sometimes husbands, people who just shared a bench two over and somehow got the credit because they happened to have penises in their pants. Uh, but just a short list of some famous women that uh, were passed over for their discoveries. Jian Xingwu uh, was a member of the Manhattan Project, had basically proved a law that had been accepted for 30 years to be false in physics. And her two male colleagues got the Nobel. And I think that it's particularly heinous because three people are allowed to get it. Oh, I know. So there is room. Lisa Meitner, her work led to the discovery of nuclear fission. So, you know, no big deal. She was left off the paper, left off of the Nobel Prize, and not really recognized ever. So even Niels Bohr, uh, who some may recognize as the namesake (laughs) of the Bohr model of the atom, uh, thought that she really, really should have been included on every single one of her discoveries and that she was a very vital force in all of this work. But she, you know, was just uh, trampled by history. Stampled is stamped and trampled. (laughs) Uh, Nettie Stevens finally uh, worked with mealworms to figure out that males produce sperm with either an X or a Y chromosome and females produce eggs with only X chromosome. This was the discovery that proved that sex was determined by genetics. And also that Henry VIII was totally full of crap when he killed all those ladies for not producing sons definitely his fault but so uh what happened in this case is that a man yeah his fault he definitely it was his fault get it together henry <laughs> he willed those x sperm to go up that vagina find that egg well, it was certainly his fault that he killed them <laughs> if you insist on bringing up the details so in the case of of this astoundingly important discovery in genetics. A man wrote the first textbook on genetics and asked her for all kinds of details on her experiments and then didn't credit her at all in the book, ensuring that she was never, ever really credited with this discovery. When she died of breast cancer, he wrote about her in an article in Science Magazine that he thought she didn't have a broad view of science. Assholes! What a jerk! Okay, can I... stampled on her grave. (laughs) Oh, hey, can I borrow your notes? Thanks. You're not very smart, are you? <laughs> uh, so sadly, um, while there have been efforts to improve uh, women's equality in science fields, there's still gender biases. Um, in a randomized double-blind study, uh, science faculty from research-intensive universities in the States, I believe, rated application materials of a student who was randomly assigned either a male or a female name for a laboratory manager position. Faculty participants rated the male applicant as significantly more competent and hireable than the identical female applicant. These participants also subjected or selected a higher starting salary and offered more career mentoring to the male applicant. The gender of the faculty participants did not affect responses, so both women and men were equally likely to uh, bias exe- uh, against the female student applying for this position. 
internalized sexism. Um, and a similar Swedish study in the 1990s was prompted by discovering that women applying for science fellowships were half as successful as their male counterparts. Analysis of the applications found women had to be 2.5 times as productive as men in terms of research and publishing to be considered as competent on their applications. So what we've learned, again, public service announcement, buy men's razors, use men's names. <laughs> I have some some dear people in my life who are men who have names that are traditionally female names and may or may not be spelt in that way mm -hmm. and may or may not be completely furious with their parents for subjecting them to this their whole life. And now it seems like there's some legit outrage to be had there. Yeah, sure. So from now on... Is this on, why the boy named Sue fought so much? Or the husband named Lauren, one of the two. I think... <laughs> I think before we uh, let uh, we untie the uh, male hosts, we should steal their names. My dear, my dream when I was a kid was to like have a name that you could like buy a pencil with your name on it. Never saw a pencil with a name Deanna on it. Also, oh, sorry. So I was just trying to think of what the pencil brand was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like the keychain or the pencil or like something. Oh yeah, that also really frustrated like if only me. my name was yeah. Bic. <laughs> 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 we also want to talk a little bit about science research about sexism, specifically some of the research that has either sort of confirmed sexist theories or purported to and had debunked sexist theories. Um, so in her uh, book, Feminist Approaches to Science in 1991, neurophysicist Ruth Blyer wrote that research on presumed sex differences in cognitive abilities is an area of the natural sciences in need of the drastic revision that feminists affected in the field of primatology. This field is fraught with ex unexamined or untested assumptions with inconclusive and contradictory findings and misleading interpretations that become incorporated into belief systems called theories and with the reckless use of the language designed to appeal to the news media and a reading public highly susceptible to scientific pronouncements, especially those that confirm common beliefs. So that's all those articles that like men are more attracted to women who they see crying because of evolution or men are inherently less able to see dirt and therefore that they can't be blamed for not cleaning the house and things like that. Not true. <laughs> you can totally blame them. <laughs> How effective that's going to be, that's different. So evolutionary psychology. So psychology studied while evolution is ongoing. Basically, what we're talking about is how men should be able to do whatever they want because cavemen. This stuff makes me crazy. I, I go hysterical. I'm going to need an orgy, people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're uh, taking a lot of this from an article by Martha McCahey. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced that. From American Sexuality Magazine in 2008. Which basically talks about how evolutionary psychology uses Darwinian theory to explain, among other things, how human males and females evolved with different sexualities, or in the jargon of evolutionary psychologists, different sexual psychologies. That sounds a lot more interesting than it actually is. The subtext is men and women want different things in a mate and have different sexual styles, while the fairer sex is choosy about her mates, more capable of a lasting bond with a lover, and dedicated to her role as a parent, the hairier sex is sexually promiscuous, places an enormous emphasis on women's youth and beauty, which he ogles every chance he gets, either cheats on his wife or wants to, and can be sexually aggressive to the point of criminality. So hairier sex, 
men and feminists, right? Yeah. Because they don't shave their armpits. Exactly. The hairier you are, the more you want sex. Yeah. That's what Darwin says, apparently, according to these these people. That's why I have these lovely locks. An issue of Men's Health magazine explains the sex science facts to readers interested in the biology of attraction. So the quote is, we must learn the evolutionary history of sex to see why men feel the way they do when they notice a beautiful woman walking down the street. I feel like they would sell more issues if it was, we must learn the evolutionary history of sex to see why men feel the way they do when they notice a oh. beautiful woman yeah, it's not the walking writer. down the street. I feel like men's health readers want to believe it's B, but I think in reality it's A. Okay, well, we'll continue. Then. In terms of voices. Out there in the street, you have no thoughts about <laughs> genetic compatibility or childbearing. Probably the farthest thing from your mind is having a child with that beautiful woman. But that doesn't matter. What you think counts for almost nothing. In the environment that crafted your brain and body, an environment in which you might be dead within minutes of spotting this beauty. Because dinosaurs. The only thing that counted was your clever neocortex. Your sight of seat of higher reason be turned off so that you could quickly select a suitable mate impregnator and succeed in passing on your genes to the next generation the article the biology of attraction just a second just a second i need a moment i'm feeling a little faint so basically according to men's according to men's health men are like i'm trying to think of like an animal that is does that in leaves like ducks or (laughs) they're like a dog with a red rocket the opposite of a seahorse The article, The Biology of Attraction by Lawrence Gonzalez, proceeds to identify the signals of fertility that attract men, youth, beauty, big breasts, and a small waistline. Focusing on the desire for youth in women, the article tells men the reason men of any age continue to like young girls is that we were designed to get them pregnant and dominate their fertile years by keeping them that way. When your first wife has lost the overt signals of reproductive vitality, you desire a younger woman who still has them all. And of course, male readers are reminded that your genes don't care about your wife or girlfriend or what the neighbors will say. No, the genes don't care. That that part, that part, true. <laughs> genes totally don't care. Men, the popular account of evolution tells us, are rampantly heterosexual skirt chasers. So anyone who's gay serves at best as evidence of the supposedly non-adaptive delights in which some humans indulge, and at worst as evidence of what is unnatural and therefore immoral. So basically, no one really wins in this scenario. You know, I feel like a lot of this stuff is just so insulting to men. Mm-hmm. You know, and oh, I, don't, totally. I don't understand yeah. why men aren't more outraged at these things. That, yeah. that they're seen as, like, not capable of acting like a kind, decent person. That, that that is not a skill that they have or were bred for. But, you know, I have heard men say, like, oh, I just look at, you know, women's boobs because that's how I've been evolved. I don't know if you can't control that. Professor of Sociology Thomas Guerin comments on the cultural authority of science, suggesting that if science says so, we are more often than not inclined to believe it or act on it. 
and to prefer it to claims lacking this seal of approval. So basically, this evolutionary psychology stuff is using gender stereotypes and sort of perversions of Darwinism and evolutionary theory to reinforce sexism and heterosexism in our society, and people buy it because it says it's science. And often they're not even reading the whole studies, they're just reading that like headline reported in the tabloid newspaper of what the study said. You know, and I'm not a scientician. Is that good science to start with the conclusion, to start with the answer, men can't look at boobs? That is the scientific method. Is it? You start with the conclusion, and then you generate the data to support your conclusion. <laughs> That's and what then I thought. you underline science in the title. There's some reasons, other than the obvious, why this is not really so much sense-making. The heterosexual male preference for women with large breasts is not uniform across cultures today, nor have large breasts been the ideal throughout history. And some of the best evidence came from a study that uh, Marcel Zentner and Claudia Mitura in the UK did, um, where they asked more than 3,000 people in 10 countries what they valued in a mate. And they also used a World Economic Forum measure of gender equality to rank the 10 countries on their level of gender equality. So the more egalitarian the country, they found the less likely men and women were to value traditional qualities um, that other researchers believed to be innate. So in Germany, women said they'd very much like a man who is a good housekeeper. In Finland, men were more likely than women to prefer a mate a bit smarter than themselves. In the US, women ranked chastity as more important than men did. At the other end of the scale, in Turkey and South Korea, women wanted mates with good financial prospects and men valued good cooks. So the more gender equality there is in your society, the less likely that you're going to see that sort of traditional mate preference based on traditional ideas of femininity and masculinity. So what does it say about a culture when the men prefer body pillows? Well, where, where is the feminist stance in such a country? Haven't we've all evolved to want to hug. What does what does hugging have to do with evolution? Someone's- Someone who's ain't gonna talk back. <laughs> um, I think that more research because I think on they're just hugging, right? They're just hugging. Just oh hugging. yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it also depends which character is on the body pillow, but um, that that's for further research. A I'm different sure. discussion for a different pillow day. Yes, pillow talk, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as we've talked about a little bit, there's a lot of sort of codification of sexism and and normalizing of sexism in society that then becomes internalized by all of us. And and some of it has to do with uh, some of the biology of women and things that clearly differentiate us from men. So we've talked about breasts, although we shouldn't, you know, go too far because some men do have breasts and some men are sensitive about it. And I'm sure that some men are actually proud of it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, However... Um, And some women don't have breasts. Also very true. However, I have yet to hear, although I'm sure that the moment I say it, I will hear of a man who has menstruated. And so this has really been something that has been very definitely the domain of women throughout history. Because of that has also engendered a lot of sexism sort of around that act and women have been persecuted at various times of the month uh, for having the nerve to be experiencing menstruation. So, for example, Pliny the Elder in in 77 CE stated that on the approach of a woman in this state, i.e. a menstrual state, must will become sour, seeds sterile, grafts wither away, 
garden plants will parch up and the fruit will fall from the tree. Her very look, even, will dim the brightness of mirrors, blunt steel, and take away the polish from ivory. A swarm of bees, if looked upon her, will die. So she's basically Medusa once a month. And good news, we've figured out what happened with hive colony collapse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those menstruating women. Too many ladies on the rag. So women who are menstruating have been barred from everyday activities throughout history, even to the point of being kept out of sight until they were deemed fit to return to the company of decent society. Uh, and this is partly understandable, as people didn't normally bleed without some kind of traumatic injury, except that half the people do normally bleed yeah. without some sort of traumatic injury. No, 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 no. You don't understand. People didn't normally bleed <laughs> without some kind of traumatic injury. Oh, sorry, you mean people as a term for men. Yes. Yeah. Just, uh, just people. girls. Yes, okay. Bled. Uh, so some pre prejudices that have been associated with menstrual blood. Hair washing during menstruation will not hold a curl. Great, great if you actually were looking for a straightening iron. Um, fruit <laughs> and vegetables that are canned by a menstruating woman will spoil. A dental filling that is put in during that time of the month will fall out. Mayonnaise will curdle if the menstruating woman has helped prepare it. Likewise, butter will not set and... Uh, <laughs> Jam or jelly will also not set. So <laughs> mayonnaise. I think it's because there's a lot of eggs in the mayonnaise, and they're just like, "What are you doing? You're but destroying just like, my brothers." <laughs> it's yes. like I think this is why I can't I can't help but laugh. A because I'm not a huge fan of mayonnaise, so <laughs> that if that stuff curdles, oh well. <laughs> well, it's like you know nothing nothing nothing's gonna go right. But that kind of makes me think these superstitions were actually um, invented by menstruating women to be like, screw it. I'm sitting on the couch. You guys go churn that butter. You guys go make that mayonnaise. You mm. make that. I can't touch that. That would have been smart. So if a menstruating woman touches a fruit tree, the fruit will spoil where it hangs. A menstruating woman can turn wine at a winery into vinegar in all of those barrels. Uh, bread will not rise. Hams uh, if hung to cure, if touched by a menstruating woman, will spoil. And any meat butchered by a menstruating woman will spoil. I wonder if this was just something that was applied retroactively, like whether they would find spoiled fruit and just be like, you must have touched it when you were menstruating. Or whether they actually stopped women from doing these things. Because it would strike me that most people would either learn from it not happening, that that's kind of dumb, or would not be able to afford to not have their female relatives doing that kind of work. Yeah, you'd think that you'd be able to figure it out pretty quick by like, I know, let's test. Mm -hmm. You do it this week, and then you do it next week, mm -hmm. and then you do it the next week, and we'll see what happens. Like, We'll just give you this little jar of jam, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> but jam making is not like a tiny little one jar activity. I don't know if you, you guys... You say that to the hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will. We're talking artisanal batches here. <laughs> Thimbles. Sorry. Thimbles of jam. Sorry, I come from a farming background. When you made jam, you invited all your neighbors and you did it together because it's a shit ton of work. Were any of them menstruating? Did More you than do, likely. Did you do a check at the door? More, I've never checked, but given that. An honor system survey. <laughs> did anyone call in because their Aunt Flo was visiting and you just took it at face value? Can't come in. The red bus is driving by. <laughs> That's what we need is more euphemisms. <laughs> uh, and they might become in handy because not all associations with menstrual blood are actually negative. Um, and centuries past, menstrual blood was used to treat lepers and rabies 
and also indicated by some for gout, goiter, hemorrhoids, epilepsy, worms, and headaches. So there's a lesser of two evils for you. I'm not exactly sure how the menstrual blood was um, administered in all of these Collected. cases. <laughs> a keeper. This is pre the diva cup. <laughs> just put your head there. Just put your head there. It's like you've leprosy, just stick your arm under there. <laughs> No, would that be a thing you'd volunteer you, for? Like, but please, could, leper. But could you cure <laughs> yourself? So if me. I have a headache and I'm bleeding, <laughs> or let's say I have leprosy and I'm bleeding, can you cure yourself? I'm sure. That's how it works. Is this... <laughs> Collect it, smear it, drink it. I don't know what you gotta do. Balance those humors. <laughs> Balance a bitch! <laughs> Helpfully, menstrual blood can also be used as a love potion. So added to a man's food or drink, that man will become inexorably bound to the menstruating woman. Until you tell him what the shit you did to him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey, I'm so glad our wedding night is finally here. Funny story. (laughs) That bread you had, that jam you had. Remember the one that you said, oh my God, this jam is so good. I want to be with you forever. Except for it couldn't be jam. So something else that would have curdled. (laughs) Well, it couldn't be bread. Oh, and it couldn't be wine because that would turn into vinegar. Remember that coffee that my brother prepared you? (laughs) And then I carried to the table and served you? After making a brief detour to the ladies' room. And I told you it was Aunt Flo's special recipe. <laughs> Moving on to more fun topics. Sexual assault and victim blaming. Yes. <laughs> so... Moving on. Sexual assault is a global problem. While men can also be assaulted, women are disproportionately the targets of sexual assaults. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, estimates that one in six American women has experienced rape or attempted rape in her lifetime, and that nine out of every ten rape victims is female. Nearly three quarters of rapes are committed by someone known to the victim, a friend or acquaintance, intimate partner, or relative. Trans women, women of color, and indigenous women face the highest rates of sexual assault in North America. A recent UN study on violence against women in Southeast Asian countries asked men if they had ever forced a woman to have sex. They found nearly a quarter of men in the countries they examined admitted to raping a woman or girl, over 60% in Papua New Guinea. I hope that they phrased those questions differently, because I once definitely had a guy ask me if it's implied consent like in first aid. They asked, have you ever forced a woman to have sex or have you ever had sex with someone who was too intoxicated to consent? So they didn't use the word rape. The most common motivation men in the study had for rape was a sense of sexual entitlement, a belief that men had the right to have sex with women regardless of consent. Uh, One in five Canadian men said they thought women provoke sexual assault when they're drunk. 11% of Canadians also thought women could provoke sexual assault by wearing a skirt. A skirt. A <laughs> short skirt. <laughs> Maybe a short skirt as well. <laughs> Don't wear as skirts. As long as you like, flash it up to show that you've got your modesty shorts underneath. <laughs> yeah. not, not quite as much of a provocation <laughs> in the skirt. This sense of entitlement, the boys will be boys attitude, results in victim blaming of women who are assaulted all over the world. If men can't help themselves, then women are to blame for being targets. Women are accused of inviting assault by where they were, how they were dressed, how much they drank, how they behaved, etc. I guess the question I have is how are women who are inviting sexual assault simply by living while being an Aboriginal woman or living while being a trans woman? Is that simply simply by existing or breathing you've invited sexual assault? That's a pretty big flaw in their argument that was already pretty flawed to begin with. <laughs> 
So, I mean, we see this kind of victim blaming and police recommendations that women walk in pairs at night and learn self-defense. The implication is that if women do not take these kinds of precautions, they are responsible for being attacked. In the 1990s, the Italian Supreme Court found an 18-year-old could not have been raped by her 45-year-old driving instructor because she was wearing tight jeans at the time and therefore must have consented for him to get them off. So this is the Italians? Yeah. Yeah, well, they also tried to blame scientists for not predicting an earthquake. So, and consent is an active, ongoing process. I must always be able to say yes. Yeah. Otherwise, what's assumed, or what should be assumed, is I'm saying no. Yeah, so in uh, women in the Italian parliament on that decision wore tight jeans in protest, and many organizations around the world now recognize Denim Day on April 29th to stand against sexual assault and victim blaming. In 2013, there was a brutal gang rape in Delhi leading to the death of a 23-year-old woman. Afterwards, politicians argued women should not be allowed out alone at night, and one even argued they should be banned from wearing skirts to school. One said it was not a rape at all, but, quote, a deal gone wrong. Also, the guy that said that they shouldn't be allowed out at night, I think that was a mistranslation. He actually said that they should be chained to the stove. So victim blaming plays a large part in underreporting of sexual assault, as women are afraid they will not be believed or taken seriously, especially if they don't meet an image of an ideal victim. So that's particularly true for indigenous women, trans women, women of color. Or women participating in orgies who then decided to not continue with the orgy. Yes, even like not orgies, but just like a date. Rain estimates that 68% of U.S. sexual assaults go unreported. And funnies. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to deliver workshops for youth on consent and sexual Mm -hmm. assault. Uh, It was a lot of fun. It was the workshops were designed for youth between the ages of 11 and 15. So trying to grab youth uh, around the time they're starting to think about or participate in sexual activity. So get them while they're thinking about it um, and talk about what consent looks like. And so one of those things that always came up was victim blaming. A couple of kids who would say how a young, we used an example of a young girl who was being sexually assaulted in a scenario, and they would tie themselves up into all these knots trying to think about what this young girl could have done to protect herself from sexual assault. And, you know, the first thing, you know, we would do is to initiate questions around, like, what is the decision making of the guy? So when he saw that she was in a bathroom alone, should he have opened the door? (laughs) (laughs) Only if she was choking. (laughs) If she was saying, I'm choking, help. You can't say that if you're choking. You're a liar. (laughs) So maybe, you know, how do we know when somebody's choking in a bathroom? Maybe she would have been banging. Or it was like a glass door. (laughs) Should she have been naked alone in the glass door bathroom? You know, and I think it comes back to that, you know, part of victim blaming is putting, you know, is putting the obligation, you know, on the person who is being violated to protect themselves as opposed to talking about going back or talking about the decision making of the person who is initiating it. So, for example, you're on a bus and you're about to violently sexually assault somebody to death. <laughs> and you planned this. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could stop. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't. Maybe don't. That's the new slogan, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> T-shirts. Everybody, maybe don't. <laughs> and piece that looks like, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe don't. <laughs> um. If you think you're going to sexually assault mm-hmm. someone tonight, stay in. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it can be tricky. Sometimes we, it's, it's hard to know when, when the person that we're engaging in sexual activity with is super into it. And so this is why I say, talk while you're having sex. Talk a lot. (laughs) Not only is it sexier, 
Make sure you get consent. Can you do character voices? Can you do character vo- character voice consent? <laughs> character voice consent. You want me to talk dirty? I don't On judge. caustic soda? But I think people I think people should have, um, you know, if they have a safe word, that make sure that just because they're saying it in a character voice does not mean that it's not being taken seriously. Right. And goops! And goops! <laughs> <laughs> That's my, I think that's my frog. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. Do I now know your safe word? Also not a good safe word. If you ain't a man with a lot of guts, a doggone woman will drive you nuts. You can't trust one to the corner nowadays. You gotta watch your door, she'll cheat you blind. A woman ain't got but a one-track mind. You'll find out, but it's the man that always pays. She'll feed you a line that'll turn your head, you'll marry her. And when you're in bed, she's gonna go through all the pockets in your coat and pants. Then if you object, there'll be a big fight, and chances are it'll last all night. I'm telling you, man, you just ain't got a chance. Never, never trust a woman. You'll be sorry if you do. Never, never trust a woman. She'll make a monkey out of you. You know, women are handy around the house, but they can't be trusted with man or mouse. It's a shame the way they drag a good man down. And it's a well-known fact they talk too much. They dig up dirt about the neighbors and such. Then they Paul Revere the gossip round the town. You'll blow your top when they get in your hair. They'll drive you to drink. And man, I swear, you're going to wish that you'd never seen the light of day. And I'm tipping you off. Your goose is cooked when one of them females get you hooked. So you'd better think it over, brother, while you may. Never, never trust a woman You'll be sorry if you do Never, never trust a woman She'll make a monkey out of you Telling you, man, it's a dirty shame to come home late from a poker game to a little woman that you know is just gonna give you heck. She's gonna be sitting there alone with a rolling pin. She's gonna let you have it when you walk in. And when she gets through, man, you're really gonna be a wreck. And if you've had a nip, she smells your breath, she started nagging you half to death. And brother, you gotta put up with that for life. Cause the preacher, he said, for better or worse, until you take your ride in that big black hearse, man, you just naturally got yourself a wife. Never, never trust a woman You'll be sorry if you do Never, never trust a woman She'll make a monkey out of you In the news (laughs) March 2015, Bridgeport, Connecticut Sherelle Baldwin, domestic abuse victim Her ex-boyfriend, Jeffrey Brown Had a criminal record of selling guns robbery, and resisting arrest by his early 20s. They had a baby boy. Brown moved in with another woman, but used access to his son to repeatedly threaten Baldwin, taking her phone, credit cards, and money. He beat her up in her home, causing Baldwin to call the cops twice. After his last conviction in early May 2013 for breach of the peace, a reduced charge, Baldwin could only get a court order barring more threats, harassment, or assaults against her while he was visiting their son. 
days later, Brown abducted their son from Baldwin's home, only returning him after she chased him in her car. Then, after days of Brown constantly texting, demanding sex and money, she wrote, Leave me alone! Exclamation points galore. He replied, And you will see how crazy shit will get today! Uh, when the police, firefighters, and ambulances arrived two hours later, they found Brown crushed between Baldwin's car and a cement wall at the end of the driveway. His hand clenched a two-inch-wide leather belt she told police he had used to whip her and try to choke her before she fled to the car. Baldwin was barefoot with a badly broken leg and in her nightshirt on the ground beside the car, dazed and crying for her baby. Bridgeport detectives decided that it did not look like Brown had broken into the house. They mistakenly called him her boyfriend. They concluded that Baldwin had ample time to consider the actions she took before the events that caused and led to the death of Jeffrey Brown. Under Connecticut's self-defense law, people have a duty to retreat unless there is an imminent threat. Baldwin was charged with murder. Her bail was set at $1 million. Last month, after a six-week trial, a jury voted 11 to 1 not to convict. The state will retry the case. Miles Garrity, her attorney and her attorney and a retired public defender, said, If there is a court order protecting a woman, at the very least, the woman who is the beneficiary of that order shouldn't have to retreat. 50% of these orders are disobeyed. The woman should not have any duty to retreat from the person who is told not to assault assault, harass, and threaten her. It's as if that order didn't even exist. So just some key domestic violence stats to give a bit of context to that story. Two million American women are assaulted by their male partners each year. According to the U.S. Surgeon General, domestic violence is the leading cause of injury prompting women to seek medical attention, more common than rape, car accidents, and mugging combined. And it causes a range of physical and mental health problems. So basically, this guy was harassing her... They had a son together. And assaulting her um, when they were together. Threatening her. She did everything she could to try and get legal protection against him. Yep. He was holding a weapon of abuse when he was found dead. Yep. And everybody was like, nah, she probably had options. And she was wounded she had a badly broken leg somehow i thought that was from the car accident i don't know if that was conclusively proven but they also found her purse um underneath where he was standing where he was pinned against the wall but they said you know basically he didn't break into your house so you may have opened the door and therefore sort of you had something to do with this and yeah peepholes Mm -hmm. peepholes solve crimes if you hear a ring on the doorbell and you don't have a peephole that could be a cakeogram (laughs) <laughs> no one wants to miss cake. No. So you open the door and it's a guy with a belt. I really want a cake gram right now, actually. I could use a cake gram Yeah. What would, what would you <laughs> ladies, ladies be wanting cake. <laughs> you know, what I see, you know, and I've, I've worked in anti-violence for a lot, is this consistent idea of this piece of paper is going to protect women when we see that the police and the state are not interested in actually upholding that piece of paper or that in making it real. So in Canada, we call them peace bonds or restraining orders. And often women will get them against their partner. And I've seen examples of this often. Um, And in a lot of situations, the man will get access to the woman using access to the child. So saying, you know, I have a right to see my child. And women Mm -hmm. often want the other parent to parent that child. I can see why. 
That um, sounds that sounds like a good idea. It's like you know you know what kind of traits I would love to engender in my beautiful my beautiful little child is is violence and rape. Part of what makes violence against women in intimate relationships so confusing is the relationship that women often have with the abuser so that they do genuinely care about that person Mm -hmm. who is actively harming them. So they they may want the other parent to have access to the child. They may be ordered by the courts to let the other parent have access to the child. Or they may have other skills that they actually do want. Like they might be really good at shuffleboard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the men will um, can use that access in order to abuse women. Or the other situation is the cops will say, look, you contacted that person first. We're not going to enforce that order ever again. I really love this quote um, from this article by uh, legal scholar Marianne Franks, where she talks about a two-tracked system of self-defense. So for women, you get battered women's syndrome, which is basically um, sort of saying that like women should try to... Uh, retreat from the situation and stand your ground for men. So she says it has far-reaching implications outside the courtroom. Battered women's syndrome sends a legal and social message that women should retreat from their even their own homes in the face of objective, repeated harm to their bodies. Stand your ground sends the legal and social message that men, and I put in brackets white men, can advance against strangers anywhere on the basis of vague subjective perceptions of threats. Male violence is not only tolerated but celebrated. Women's violence is is not only discouraged, but stigmatized. Pop culture. The Bechdel test. Uh, The Bechdel test asks if a work of fiction features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. The requirement that the two women must be named is sometimes added. Almost half of contemporary films fail the test, and critics have noted that the test is most informative when applied in the aggregate, because individual works may pass or fail the test for reasons unrelated to sexism. For example, the movie Star Trek 2009 passes the Bechdel test because Uhura talks to her lab partner about a science experiment while Kirk watches her getting changed from underneath the bed. So they can pass the (laughs) test, but not necessarily be feminist. Likewise, you can fail the test for a pretty cool movie movie just because two women didn't talk to each other or it's set at a male boarding school yeah or like i mean like the movie milk is about lgbt issues and yes there definitely could have been more women in it but i would argue it's still a pretty cool film but it doesn't pass the backdale test but it is a good indicator that you maybe just don't have a lot of women characters or that they're turning up in really stereotypical ways so the test is named after the american cartoonist allison bechdel In 1985, she had a character in her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out for voice the idea, which she attributed to a friend, Liz Wallace. Women in refrigerators. So the term women in refrigerators was coined by Red Sonia slash Birds of Prey writer Gail Simone. It refers to an incident in Green Lantern number 54, which is a 1994 comic written by Ron Mars, in which the title hero comes home to his apartment to find that his girlfriend has been killed by a villain and stuffed in a refrigerator. Keeps her fresh. (laughs) <laughs> Although maybe she was killed for being fresh. It's it's tough to say. She used that as a name for a website that collected examples of this narrative uh, way of basically killing off women in horrible ways in order to give male characters a motivation for their feelings or to allow them to express their feelings. So it's not anything about the woman. It's the woman dying for the purposes of the male character. My other favorite is um, surviving sexual assault as a primary motiv- motivator of women. That that's you know, and we see that in a lot of uh, movies or films like V for Vendetta, where what really defines the character is not her own resistance to the system or her own thinking. It's that she survived this like horrible torture 
on the part of um, the dominant male character. Well, it makes it a lot easier to explain in a narrative. Like if you think of, you know, going into a bunch of political convictions and as we, we've discovered in, in talking about these things, that there's a lot of depth in the issues and there's a lot of subtlety and it's a lot easier to say, yeah, I was raped as a kid. It's true. It's like one line. What really frustrates me is that male characters don't have to. Like they don't have to justify no, they wanting just have to, to say my wife world. was in a refrigerator. Well, the, <laughs> sometimes. And sometimes they can just exist. They just wake up and they're like, I just want to be a better person. I just want to save the world. And nobody's mm. saying, why do you want to save the world? But like, why does Superman want to save the world? Yeah. But when the motivation is a dead woman that they cared about, it kind of plays into this idea that, like, the women were men's property and also this idea that masculinity is about, you know, avenging and violence. Um, Ron Mars, who uh, wrote that Green Lantern comic, uh, his reply partly stated, uh, to me, the real difference is less male-female than main characters supporting character. In most cases, main characters, title characters who support their own books are male. The supporting characters are the ones who suffer the more, more permanent and shattering tragedies, and a lot of supporting characters are female. So that sounds sort of like a cop-out to me, but... I just want to be Superman. Oh, Superman's boring. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a Superman fan. (laughs) I want to be Wolverine. He's hairy. I want want what everyone gets cake. (laughs) Oh, my favorite. The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood about a dystopian future where the few remaining fertile women are reproductively controlled in a Christian theocratic military dictatorship. As it should be. These women are kept as handmaids or concubines to serve the men of the ruling class. They wear red habits and white winged hats. It was made into a 1990 film directed by Volker Schlundorf which starred Natasha Richardson as Kate or Offred who is handmaid to the commander Fred played by Robert Duvall, as his wife, Faye Dunaway, is unable to conceive. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book multiple times. The movie's pretty awful. Is it? Yeah. I think it's just really overwrought. It's just, it feels like a soap opera version of The Handmaid's Tale. Like, everything is so in-your-face obvious, and it lacks kind of the fun, subtle elements that Margaret Atwood puts into the narrative. Like her dry humor, I think, often. Um, And it's so overly serious. And then they kind of made it more of a love story than the novel. But anyway, in the novel, Atwood defines the roles for women in the dystopia. Wives and daughters of ruling class men are at the top of the hierarchy, followed by handmaids, and then women who are not fertile but serve the system in other clearly defined roles. Then there are illegitimate women, quote unquote, in the society, including Jezebels, who are sterilized sex workers in state-sanctioned brothels, and widows, feminists, lesbians, nuns, handmaids who fail to bear children, and politically dissident women. And these women are exiled to the colonies. Are the colonies actually fun and the men just don't know it? I think they sound fun. Like, if it's <laughs> a whole bunch the fun of, people. Yeah, it's like the fun women that are getting <laughs> exiled there. <laughs> and there's no kids around to be annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of cake. And I think there would be an equitable decision making about who gets to bake the cake based on when they're menstruating. (laughs) Likely. (gasps) Yes. Nine to five. I love this movie. I love this movie. We'll defend it. If you haven't watched it, you are missing out because it has Dolly Parton. And if that's not enough to convince you to watch any film, which it should be, it has Lily Tomlin. (laughs) If that's not enough to convince you, which it should be, it has Jane Fonda. (laughs) (laughs) So three... Really amazing, funny women. Plus Dabney Coleman. Yeah, some guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is an office satire about three female secretaries who decide to get revenge on their tyrannical sexist boss by abducting him and running the business themselves. The trio, one of whom has been passed over for promotion because she is a woman, having drug-induced fantasies of killing the slave-driving chauvinist. One of them panics the following day when she suspects she really has poisoned the tyrant. I should note that I just rewatched this for this podcast, and the drug-induced fantasies are brought on by three women sharing one joint. <laughs> so that required a bit of suspension of disbelief, but otherwise it's a pretty... Unless the fantasies are ongoing, <laughs> and they just happen to have the one joint. <laughs> well, they are drinking as well. And then somehow they also managed to prepare a massive dinner at the same time. Because they're ladies, and they're just good at that. Naturally. So they they kidnap the boss and then hide them away and then they start setting up at this like great successful feminist business with like mm-hmm. in-house child care and job sharing for women who want to like spend part of the time with their kids. It's like this utopia that's created because they hide the boss. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful film and I think that folks should watch it because it's hilarious. Also Dolly Parton. Uh, Dolly Parton adapted 9 to 5 into a 2009 not very successful Broadway musical starring Megan Hilty, Stephanie J. Block and Alice and Janney. Um, it ran less than six months but it got four Tony nominations and she wrote the whole soundtrack to it and it is quite excellent. Includes- Have you seen it? Uh, no, I'm just a big fan of the soundtrack. Do you, think, uh, do you think we could put it on? I can sing you part of the... So, you know, like, the theme song for 9 to 5 that normally... So they added in new lyrics. So, like, the woman who's been left by her husband that cheated on her has, like, Working 9 to 5 became necessary when my husband Dick left me for his secretary. <laughs> and it's pretty awesome. Oh, and then here's my my specialty, uh, which is sexism in Star Trek. Noting that, you know, Gene Roddenberry said, I tend to think in the future it won't seem at all strange that women are treated as the equals of men. And there was a lot of things in Star Trek that were really progressive and feminist for the time um, in the original series and Next Generation. But there were also some problems. Gene Roddenberry acknowledged more could have been done to represent women better in the original series. And he did receive complaints from women as early as the 60s and 70s about the impractical miniskirts, the female officers falling madly in love with dashing male villains often endangering the ship, and implying that women can't be trusted to put their duty over their desires. So... My pick for the most sexist episode of all of Star Trek, Angel One. So Gates McFadden described it as one of the most sexist episodes we ever had. And Patrick Stewart sought to have the episode changed to reduce those elements. Um, Have either of you guys seen this? No. Oh my god. Basically, the idea was to create an allegory about apartheid by showing a planet controlled by women who rule from a ceremonial yoga studio, enslaving men and forcing them to wear 1980s figure skating outfits. So basically, like, right now, outside (laughs) the studio, this is what's happening. Yes. The 1980s figure skating outfits for uh, Kevin Joventorn are being delivered shortly. (laughs) I want to know how a ceremonial yoga studio differs from a regular yoga studio. It's a yoga studio in Vancouver where people just wear yoga pants but don't actually do any yoga. Again, how does that... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually very true. I know nothing of yoga. (laughs) The society is ruled by a council of mistresses. Um, The Enterprise arrives to rescue survivors of a freighter crash. The leader of the planet, Mistress Beata, can't keep her hands off Riker. I can understand why. Doesn't he play the saxophone? (laughs) Trombone. (laughs) 
that may have been tabled as a name for our son. <laughs> I reserve the right to. Uh... <laughs> yep. Riker? Okay. Big, it's long. <laughs> we didn't want to give him a complex of any kind. But uh, things fall apart when Mistress Ariel, who's on the Council of Mistresses, is secretly in love with the crashed freighter captain, Space MacGyver. That's my name for him, because he is exactly like MacGyver, only in space. <laughs> I'm in love with Space MacGyver. Oh, yeah. So luckily, Alpha Male Riker helps these irrational women see sense, and we learn women cannot be trusted in positions of power. I didn't need to learn that. I already knew it. I was just going to say, thank goodness we learned that. (laughs) So Will Wheaton, or Will Wheaton, says that Angel One has a promising first act, but the simplistic and overtly sexist plot makes it one of the first season's most forgettable episodes. In many ways, it feels like a script from the 1960s that was barely retooled. Riker is practically a clone of Kirk. We've got the mysterious disease of the week that's mysteriously cured in the last few moments of the show. And though the episode is supposed to flip the traditional roles of 1950s America and be about a society dominated by women, there's an overwhelming sense of chauvinism, almost like the writer is winking at the men in the audience and snickering at how cute it is that the girls think they're in charge. Oh my goodness, is that an image from the episode? No, that's from a different episode. Okay. Um, We are looking at the uh, picture of uh, women in fur bikinis from Shore Leaf, uh, but... I feel like I found my new swimming outfit for the summer. (laughs) doesn't this, like, address the temperature issue we were talking about with bra burning? (laughs) <laughs> i kind of want one of them okay we've decided we take back our comments about how we want to burn our bras and we just want fur bras instead so fur bikini me up through the rest of the next generation and into deep space nine and voyager we got more and better roles for women 87.5 percent of voyager episodes passed the bechdel test largely because of the choice to cast women in the roles of captain and chief engineer and unless i'm mistaken that is better record than sex in the city Really? A lot of those episodes do not pass because they talk about men. Yeah. But it hasn't been so promising since Voyager went off the air. Uh, Enterprise reduced the number of main female characters and re-embraced the original series Boys Club atmosphere. uh, Horrible. Let's bring back the Orion Slave Girls. Great idea, boys. Okay. Best episode of The Simpsons ever. Lisa versus Malibu Stacy, 1994. So in the episode, Lisa challenges the makers of the Malibu Stacy doll to create a less sexist doll. Together with the original creator of Malibu Stacy, Stacy Lovell, Lisa creates the doll Lisa Lionheart in an effort to positively influence young girls. The episode's plot was inspired by the Teen Talk Barbie line of talking dolls, which spoke a number of phrases considered demeaning to women. Was Kath- that the one that said math is hard? Yeah. yeah. Kathleen Turner guest starred in the episode as Stacey Lovell, creator of Malibu Stacey. So it's, yeah, very obviously a Barbie allegory, but it was great. It, I mean, it showed um, Lisa is a great character anyway, I think, um, for highlighting sexism in a lot of areas. And then she creates this awesome Lisa Lionheart doll, but then, like, doesn't succeed because capitalism and sexism. So I just wanted to briefly mention another uh, movie about sexism, which is North Country, a 2005 movie by Nikki Caro, uh, starring Shirley's Theron as a fictionalized version of the lead plaintiff in the first major sexual harassment case in the U.S. The women in the case portrayed in the film found the only well-paying jobs in town were working at the mine, but when they got hired in the movie and in real life, they faced sexist slurs, gropings, they had their belongings vandalized. Um, But they they were asking for it, right? Oh, well, they were taking men's jobs, so yeah. 
Um, male coworkers ejaculated on the women's clothing stolen from their lockers. And they experienced other issues like being denied a bathroom in the pit because the male miners had been okay with just peeing in bottles. When the women finally filed suit, their personal histories were dragged up and critiqued to attack their credibility. The film lends itself to discussion of how difficult it can be for women to report harassment and assault. Their very real fears for their safety, reputations, and jobs. In the real case of Jensen v. Eveleth Mines, uh, it took 10 years to resolve in court and was only finally settled 20 years after the harassment occurred. By the time Jensen received compensation, her children were grown and she was too disabled to work. So depressing, but it's a good movie. Have you guys seen it? I went to it by myself when I was visiting friends in a town I wasn't living in. And so, but I just remember like weeping through the whole film, Mm. um, which is, you know, one of those odd things that happens when you go to a movie by yourself and you're like, I'm just going to cry here Mm. and then I'm just going to cry on my way home. But it's all right. Mm. I'm not hysterical, nor am I melancholy. Nor are you a man. (laughs) A-okay. You got all the boxes ticked. Mm -hmm. There's a legitimate reason for my tears, (laughs) but it is a really great movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Charlize Theron, it's it's another one of those movies where I think at the time she was being critiqued for making herself seem unattractive in order Mm. to find challenging roles. Never mind. Trying to portray how sort of normal people look. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I just rewatched Water, a 2005 Canadian film that was written and directed by Deepa Mehta. But it's set in 1938 and explores the lives of widows at a spiritual hermitage ashram in uh, Vanrasi in India. The basic plot surrounds these widows that are ostracized from society because uh, when a woman is married in the Hindu religion at the time, and so when women were sort of the possessions of their husbands and her uh, his family, if the husband died, she couldn't remarry because it was an insult to her dead husband and, and was a sin. So she would just be a burden on that family, couldn't go back to her previous family, her premarital family, because she was a burden on that family. So they just got sent to basically live as paupers among other widows. And it's just an absolutely gorgeously shot film, mm-hmm. poignant Uh, It's also sort of backdrop by the journey of Gandhi across India, spreading uh, new messages and sort of breaking down some of these barriers uh, for women. And it sort of follows the story of an eight-year-old girl who had become widowed and her life as she was, you know, ostensibly entering this hermitage to live out the rest of her days and befriending who had previously been the youngest widow in the hermitage who was prostituted out across the river by a eunuch who is friends with the the head head widow and it's just a gorgeous movie that I would definitely encourage anyone to watch. This is part of a series of films. So there's fire, earth and then water and I think any all of them are great. Fire is an amazing movie, earth is an amazing movie. So I think just Deepa Mehta is an incredible director. Obviously, this is a movie about sexism, not a sexist movie. Um, and Fire, I think, also has a lot of themes of uh, around feminism and heteros- or sexism and heterosexism. And most importantly, they row hoes <laughs> across the river. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't. Don't go crazy today.
Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while undergoing surgical debridement. To comment on episodes and for links and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. To support the podcast, you can donate on our site or visit patreon.com slash causticsoda. Visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Cigarettes. <laughs> Cigarettes and wine. Or juice. Do not make a cake. <laughs> I tried this one time. Didn't rise. It must have been on the rag. <laughs> <laughs>